0: Since I was a kid, my dream was always to be a magician. I grew up watching David Copperfield specials and reading books about Houdini, but also devoured fantasy and horror books dealing with their versions of real magic. Like lots of children, I got a little magic kit for Christmas one year, full of sponge balls and a wand that would push out silk flowers and a small stuffed rabbit that would hide in the inner pocket of a small collapsible polyester top hat. Unlike most children, I stuck with it, and any family vacation led me to begin meticulous research of any magic shops on the route, followed by a campaign of whining and extra diligence in those chores to ensure that I got the necessary detours to pick up some new book or item. Even at 35, I still truly love magic, believe in magic, I want to hone my craft as a stage magician, which has been my trade for the past few years, and still hold out some dim hope in the deepest recesses of my heart that one day, just maybe, I'll see real magic instead of the illusions I perform. But I know that's not realistic or likely, so I practice stage magic in its place. Pick up new tricks where I can by working as backups and assistants to more well-known and experienced illusionists. And that's how I got here, holding a noose for this fat, drunk fuck known on stage as the Great Sadir. It's very much up to debate if the Great Sadir was ever actually great. From what I hear, he was never very original or talented, but early in his career, he had a whole Indian mystic theme going that was unique enough to draw in decent crowds. Then he got bit by a snake, spent a week in the hospital due to infection, and after that, he apparently pretty much said, fuck it. Goodbye, cool turban with mysterious sitars playing in the background, hello, cliche, top hat, and weird 80s synth music blaring like aha and Depeche mode on slow train to hell. When I got to him, he was a bad alcoholic and a worse stage performer, but the tragic thing was that he did have a lot of knowledge and some talent. I saw an opportunity to learn, so I joined up with him. And he has taught me a few things, though he doled them out with an agonizing slowness to ensure my continued servitude. But fuck me, I think I've learned all I can, and I'm at my limit. He's half in the back already, and it's the early show. When I finally clinch the fake noose around his fat neck, I find myself wishing he didn't have the harness. Afterward, I hit the alley behind the lounge, we're playing at full speed, still trying to decide if I'm going to get dinner or pack my shit and head out. That's when Johnny Quick comes up to me. If you don't follow magicians closely or didn't a few years back, you probably don't know who Johnny Quick even is. But there was a time where he was a BFD in certain magician circles. He was never flashy and he never played big venues, but he always had money and he could do tricks that other magicians couldn't spot. People just chalked it up to how fast and nimble his hands were, which was where his name came from. It stuck and he started using it as a stage name until he suddenly fell off the map a couple years ago. I knew all this because I'm obsessed with magicians, not because I ever met him, and meeting him, Dirty alley or No, was a huge deal for me. After a moment of stunned, idiotic silence, I stepped forward and shook his hand. I was about to launch into some embarrassing gushing about how awesome he was when he beat me to it. Hey, I'm Johnny. Your name's Keith, right? I nodded, beaming like the girl with the bedazzled headgear who just got asked to prom. I saw your show. Christ, the deer really is shit, huh? I laughed. You have no idea. He grinned. Well, your stuff was good, especially your close-up work with that woman from the audience. I felt myself flushing at the compliment, but he was already moving on. Good, but not as good as it could be. I can help you get better. Way better. I felt lightheaded. Was this some kind of prank? Uh... Really? you do that? He nodded and I went on. Well, sure, that'd be awesome. What did you have in mind? He glanced up and down the alley with a theatricality only a magician can muster before leaning in towards me. How would you like to learn real magic? Over the next week, Johnny taught me what he knew. And what he knew, surprisingly enough, was actual real magic. Specifically two tricks. He could make things appear and make things disappear. At first, I thought it had to be an illusion, of course, but over time, as he showed me how to increase my speed, the proper angles to hold my hands, the images and words I had to hold in my head depending on the object I was working with, I realized it was real. It was actual fucking magic. The funny thing is, once you know how to do it, it's easy. It really just feels like a natural extension of normal ledger domain, a.k.a. sleight of hand. But instead of palming an object or pulling it from a hidden pocket, you were literally pulling it out of thin air. Within some limits, you could pull any object you could clearly imagine into the world, and you could make most objects you could lay on your hand disappear. I asked Johnny how he had learned how to do it, and he always was vague, but after I had it down, he told me a bit more. He said he had used to run with a pretty eclectic crowd. Magicians tend to draw some odd birds from time to time. He had a buddy that was in some kind of secret society or cult, supposedly, and whatever bullshit that might have been, he had apparently picked up some real power along the way. He wouldn't tell Johnny much, but he did teach him how to make things appear and disappear. Johnny said the guy had told him that you weren't really conjuring new objects or destroying old ones. You were just pulling them from, or sending them, to a different plane of existence he called the Nightlands. He never told Johnny more about the place, but he did say there were rules to using that kind of magic. First, if you make something disappear, you need to make it or something of similar value reappear within an hour. Second, if you make something new appear, you need to make it or something else of similar value disappear within an hour. When I asked what he meant by similar value, Johnny shrugged. Best he could tell, it didn't have anything to do with the size of the thing or how much money it was worth. He said you got a feel for what was needed over time, but when in doubt, just keep your mind blank when you were doing the balance and the trick would bring or send something that was appropriate on its own. That's what he called it, doing the balance. He said that you always had to do the balance or it created problems. When I asked what kind of problems, he looked at me for a long time. Let's say you pull a coin and you just say, fuck it, I'm not doing the balance. Well, a few hours later, your car keys might disappear. Or your cat. Now, let's say you make something disappear once or twice without doing the balance. Maybe you find a random shoe that doesn't belong in your house sitting in the middle of your living room. Or a tree. Or something that looks like a spider mated with a mole rat. These are real examples I'm giving you from times I decided to test the limits of not doing the balance. It's a bad fucking idea. Okay, got it. Always do the balance. He nodded. Exactly. Which brings me to my next point. I need your help. Two hours later, we were standing on the stage of the Burnt Rabbit, an industrial music club that had become some kind of neo-goth grotesquerie before finally going bankrupt a few months earlier. Unbeknownst to me, when it was still open, the Burnt Rabbit used to host underground magic competitions. Most of it was more shock magic and body horror spectacles, but occasionally you would get real artists like Johnny to show up as well. Unfortunately, Johnny, who through the smart use of his magic and diligent doing of the balance, had amassed a small fortune, had also amassed a large heroin addiction. When he showed up the night of the magic competition with Juliet, his girlfriend and assistant of the month in tow, he was high as a fucking kite. But that didn't stop him. He leapt up on stage to thunderous applause and screams, going through a series of small tricks with such ferocity and speed that the crowd continued cheering like it was a rock show. This only encouraged him, of course, so he decided to up the ante. Swaying on his feet, he swirled his hands around and tapped Juliet on the head. She popped out of existence like an overripe soap bubble. The crowd fell deathly. Silent, And then they began to roar. He turned to face them, his arms raised in triumph. The plan was he would pump the audience up for a few seconds and then bring her back. Instead, he started to yell out to the people packed in the small club. He distantly felt himself stumble and then fall. When he woke up, it was two days later and he was in a hospital room. He learned that he had almost died of a heroin overdose. Police had asked him a few questions about Juliet, but given that nearly a hundred people had seen him collapse and be put into an ambulance, there was no real suspicion he had anything to do with her disappearance. I asked him if he tried to bring her back and he lowered his eyes. I... no, I didn't. I'm a piece of shit and I know it, but I felt sure there was no point. We'd done it before, see? Twice before I disappeared her and brought her back a few seconds later. The place she went, she said she could breathe there, but the air was it was bitterly cold and stale. Everything was dark except for lights far away in the distance. The first time she handled it okay, but the second time she had come back terrified, saying she'd never do it again. I shifted uncomfortably. Did she say why she was so scared? He glanced up at me, his face drawn. She said she heard things in the dark. She wouldn't say what, she just kept saying, I could hear them in the dark, Johnny. Bad things. And I think they were reaching out for me. His face crumpled. Shit, how the fuck could I have left her there? I figured she'd be dead after two days, that's what I told myself at least, but who knows? I left her there to die because I'm a coward. And I didn't want to deal with the consequences. His eyes were red-rimmed and fiery as he went on. Well, I'm dealing with him now. I didn't do the balance on this. I can't. I've tried sending different things over, but nothing works. And I think the magic has sent something over to balance it for me. What do you mean, sent something over? He scrubbed his hand through his hair. Just what it sounds like. Something's been stalking me the last few weeks. I get glimpses of it sometimes, and I don't know what it's waiting for, but I think maybe it's just playing with me. From what little I've seen, it's not something I want to play with. He gestured around at the stage. I came back here the night before I met you and tried to bring her back. I tried to do the balance. Sometimes work's better in the same spot if you're trying to bring back or send the same thing, so I thought it was my best shot, but I I couldn't get it to work. I don't know if it's because of how much time has passed or what the problem is, but I couldn't pull her back. I was going to ask why not when I heard thunder coming from outside. Oh, shit, fuck. That's it, it's here. His eyes were stretched wide with fear. You have to help me. We have to try again. I think if we both do it together, we can pull her back through. Boom. He looked across the darkness of the club to the far end, where I could barely make out large double doors jumping inward from some massive impact outside. If not for the chains run through the handles, they would have burst open already. Okay, okay, fuck, let's try. He nodded hurriedly. We got into position. Johnny had never showed me how to pull something with another person, and I wasn't sure he knew how either, but after a couple of false starts, I felt it starting to work. Boom! And then a metallic, wrenching sound as the doors finally gave way. I glanced back up to see a large silhouette framed in the dim light filtering in from the lobby windows. I couldn't see much, but it was enough to know I was giving this five more seconds, and then I was gone. I turned back to the task at hand and felt something give, our combined efforts finally synchronizing to pull the girl back. Her body thudded to the floor like a carcass on a butcher's floor, and I felt my gorge rising at my first glimpse of her. I remembered the thing approaching us, then looked back up, but it was nowhere to be seen. It seemed like bringing her back had done the trick, and I felt a surge of relief mingling with my fear and disgust. Johnny was on his knees beside her, weeping. He reached out as though to cradle her head, but half of it was gone, along with a good portion of her left side. It looked like it had been torn away by something large. As for what was left, her flesh was torn and cracked in various spots. Patches of her skin, various shades of light blue veined with bruises and lines of black. I saw something gleaming on the patch of her shirt that was left to partially cover her remaining breast and I felt my anger building when I saw what it was. It was a cheap little brass pin that showed a lightning bolt with three stars around it. And in the center it said, Johnny Quick, Master Magician. I took a couple of steps back. You're a fucking asshole. Johnny said nothing. He just kept crying, his thin hands, usually so supernaturally sure and fast, fluttering back and forth over her ruined body like troubled birds looking for a place to light. I wanted to feel sorry for him, but I didn't. I wanted to thank him for what he taught me, but I wasn't sure if it was much of a gift. That was all six months ago. I have my own stage show now, and I'm doing really well. At first, I swore I would never use what Johnny taught me. I told myself it was tainted and far too dangerous. But then I had a really bad set. The crowd hated me, and a group of drunk college kids were down front heckling. I just needed to shut them up. So I pulled a sword out of thin air, and then I pulled a suit of armor to go with it. I sent it back, got to do the balance, but the roar of that audience had told me what I already suspected. The next night, the audience was twice as large, and by the end of the week, my shows were sold out. Everyone has their addiction, and I've found mine. I can't stop using it, and I'm trying to do the balance, but sometimes I'm not sure what that even means. Just because I can use magic doesn't mean I understand it. And just because I try to balance things doesn't mean I really know the price to be paid. I heard last week that Johnny was found outside his condo, his head caved in, and his chest ripped apart. They have no suspects, of course. I keep telling myself that he was self-destructive, that he probably couldn't live with what he had done to that girl, so he brought something over or didn't balance again just so he could die. Maybe that's what happened. Maybe I'm standing at the edge of a black pit, pretending I know something that is unknowable. And as I look down into that darkness, reaching out my hand to touch that wonderful magic, something is crawling up to meet me and take my hand in kind. I have to go. There's a knock at the door. When I was 13, Jackie Reuser disappeared from my street. He was three years younger than me, and while I knew him, we never played together or hung out or anything like that. He was a quiet, nerdy kid who kept to himself most of the time, and he had a dark birthmark above his left eye that had gotten him nicknames from the meaner kids at school. And while I felt a bit bad for him, I also knew that if he came around me and my friends, someone would wind up messing with him. So I ignored him, and thankfully, I rarely ever crossed paths with him, despite him living just a couple of hundred yards down the street. The last time I ever did see him, the last time I guess most anybody saw him was the year a new fair had come to town It had been set up on the edge of town since before Halloween and while it had been popular for the first few nights by the second week in November things were winding down word was that it'd be gone by the weekend that's when I decided to go my family didn't have much money back then my older brother was starting college and my mom was worried about getting laid off again through Christmas I hadn't gotten to go when my friends all went back in mid-October, but I'd saved up some money since then. I asked if any of them wanted to go again, but they were either busy or weren't interested. The idea of going alone killed some of my enthusiasm, but somehow the idea of weeks of scrimping and saving my allowance for nothing was worse. So I went. The fare was decent, but not great. There were no lines for most of the rides, but they were already starting to break down two of the big ones, and most of the others were either very short for two tickets or too jerky to be fun. I tried my luck at a couple of prize booths, but between the obvious rigging and the shabby prizes, I gave up pretty quick. By seven, I was sitting on a bench, morosely eating fried corn on the cob and trying to gauge the point at which I could admit defeat and go home with my pride intact. It was as I looked around and weighed my options that I noticed a small tent at the far end of a nearby row. I couldn't make out the sign from where I was sitting, but something about the tent stood out in a way that the rest of the fair hadn't. It scared me a little, but in a fun way, and while I knew I was bound to be disappointed, I couldn't help but feel excited as I walked down to check it out. The yellowed hand-lettered sign said, Martin the Mesmerist, and while it and the tent had seen better days, they didn't look run down in the same way everything else did. I didn't think of the word at the time, but it looked authentic, legit, real in some way the other stuff lacked. Real enough, in fact, that it kinda gave me the creeps. I was already rationalizing not checking out the interior of the dark little tent when Jackie walked by me eating a turkey leg. He glanced at me, gave me a silent nod, and then disappeared between the tent flaps. That was all the shame I needed. I couldn't let a kid, much less Jackie Mudface Roiser, show me up. Even if no one would know, I would know. And back then, stuff like that mattered to me. So I followed him in. The inside of the tent was confusingly bright and large. Tall twin lamps burned in opposite corners of the spacious room, and in the middle, a small man in a dark brown suit sat in front of two semicircle rows of folding chairs. Aside from myself and the man, the only person I could see was Jackie. Sitting on the front row as he waited patiently for the show to start. I heard a pang of concern, seeing him sitting there. He looked so small and young. Where were his parents? I knew his father was an alky, but surely they hadn't just dumped him at the fair all by himself. I debated leaving, maybe even going and calling my mom to tell her that Jackie was here at the fair alone, but then a man raised his eyes to me and smiled. Come on in, good friend. Come in and have a seat. We have room to spare, as you can see, and you won't want to miss what is in store. His voice was warm and friendly on the surface, but something about it troubled me all the same as though something unseen, something nasty might be waiting under the surface of those words. Something cold and not friendly at all. Still, I was walking toward the front row. I was sitting down. I didn't understand how or why, but I was. I had a moment of real panic and then it slipped away as the man began to talk again. It was hard to look away from him, but I managed long enough to glance at Jackie. The kid was rapt, his turkey leg laying limp on his lap as he stared at the man intently, taking in every word of his story. The man was talking about olden times, about times before cars and movies and science, when people understood things better, respected things more relied on what they knew in their hearts instead of what they were told. Times when magic wasn't a trick but a truth, and the truth was the law. I don't remember all of it. My head was swimming as he spoke and most of what he said made little sense to me. He talked about words having power and places having wills of their own. He talked about things hiding in the clouds and festering deep in the rotten places of earth. I felt like he talked Forever, my mind and soul falling down the wells of his voice, a well without light or an end. I remember him reaching out and touching my forehead with a cold finger before doing the same to Jackie. I remember him looking between us before grabbing Jackie's left hand and writing a word on his pale and greasy palm. He used a red pen or marker, and even now I remember having a second where I was distantly afraid he'd cut Jackie before realizing it was just writing. Just that one word in his crooked handwriting. Eridat. The next thing I remember is sitting back on the bench I'd started from. My head was pounding and I had a bewildering moment where I thought I was just sick and confused from something I'd eaten. Then I remembered the tent, the man, and Jackie. I ran down to where the tent had been, but nothing was there. The stand next door, a place where you threw darts to pop balloons, was already closed for the night, and as I looked around, I didn't see anyone at all. I suddenly had the thought that I was trapped here somehow, stuck in this place forever, and forever alone. But no, I was being stupid. It was getting late, and the place was just closing for the night. And much like everyone else, I needed to be getting home. I started walking back toward the bus stop, my mind still trying to make sense of what I remembered. Had it been a dream, a side effect of the fried corn or the hot dog I had earlier? I was tired and still felt bad, but could I have really fallen asleep? I froze in my tracks. Down the road ahead of me, just about to turn down a side street, I saw two figures walking together under a street light. One was a small man in a brown suit, the other, even from behind, I could tell it was Jackie. My first instinct was to call out, to try and get Jackie away from that strange man, but fear and maybe common sense held my tongue. I wanted to help, but I didn't know if I could stand the idea of that man turning and looking at me again. So I followed. I trailed behind, moving from shadow to shadow as they walked silently to one street, and then another. My plan was to find out where they were headed, and then call my mom from the nearest phone, maybe the cops too. Then I turned to the next corner they'd taken, and saw their destination. It was a house, three stories tall and black as night. Even with the nearby lights, I could barely make out more than the arches of a pitched roof and the skeletal fingers of railing along a long veranda. I took all that in before realizing the wrongness of it all. I wasn't especially familiar with that part of town, but I knew it well enough to know there weren't any houses like that around. But more than that was where the house was sitting. It wasn't perched on one of the weedy lawns lining both sides of the asphalt or down at the end of the lane. It was sitting in the middle of the street. I could see the road behind it, as though it had been sat down recently by a passing giant or spun into town on a witch killing twister. It was impossible, but that didn't stop the man and Jackie from climbing the steps and going inside. I didn't follow. Of course I didn't. I was piss scared and I was doing good to make it to a gas station and call my mom. Half an hour later I was talking to the police, trying to not sound crazy and failing miserably. The thing was... Jackie really was missing. His parents said they thought he was sick in bed with a fever and had no idea he's left the house, let alone going across town to the fair so they listened to me after a fashion. Took down my description of the man, questioned people in the neighborhood, leaned on the fare workers before they could get out of town. But nothing ever came of it, and within a week, they stopped asking me anything. After all, how much stock could they put into the word of a kid, especially one that claimed he'd seen a ghost house that they couldn't find? I moved away when I got old enough i only came back to town last year to take a job as an EMT. And most days are good. I like my job. I've made new friends and I've reconnected with old ones. I try not to dwell on the bad things in my past, including the night that Jackie disappeared, but... Two days ago, we got a call to respond to a death in the field. Someone had found a homeless man. I was apparently in bad shape and unresponsive, and that meant we had to go and check it out. I always hate those calls, but this one was worse from the start. My stomach was in knots on the ride over, and by the time we reached this site and turned at the body, I was already shaking. It was a middle-aged man, dirty and scarred in several spots, with something protruding out of his mouth thinking he had choked on something. I went to try and clear his airway, but it wasn't something in his mouth. It... It was his mouth. His teeth, they had... They had somehow grown and fused together in a twisted wall of spiky bone that actually poked through his lips and cheeks in several spots. I had no idea how he ate or... What the fuck is wrong with his hands? I looked down to where partner, Jessica, was pointing. The man's hands were fused together at the fingertips, the nails and flesh writhing together like a mass of tree roots. It made him look as though he was frozen in some kind of terrible prayer. But my eye had also caught something else, a red mark, a bright crimson scar etched across the man's left palm. I parted the hands as best I could and had Jessica shine her light onto the mark there. It was a word, a single word written in raised flesh, Eridat. I stepped back with a gasp and shined my light back to the man's face. It was buried under the matted hair and dirt, but that red birthmark was still visible over his left eye. I felt my gorge rising and barely managed to turn before I started to vomit. When Jessica asked if it was okay, I told her it was something I'd eaten. I write this because I don't know what else to do. My hope is that by reducing it to words, it will be reduced. That it will stop filling my days and keeping me from sleep. I know some of it is guilt or maybe just regret. The part of me that wonders if I really did enough most of it is fear. Fear of the past and the unknown world I glimpsed that night so long ago. Fear of the horrors Jackie must have endured for so long and most of all fear that when Jackie came home he may not have come alone.